This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. I think it's important for us as humans to realize that just because something negative happens to us doesn't mean that we can't get over it. We are capable of resilience and growth and change and meeting our goals, even if it it means it comes in a different form at a different time, maybe not when we are expecting. There are positive ways of managing. There's hope. There's hope at the end of the day. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids by adults seeking the same in their own lives and focusing on being the best versions of themselves. No matter what footprint was left on you by your parents, with increased awareness and intention, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on your child. Today's show is Supporting Children's Mental Health with Dr. A. And let me introduce you to Dr. A. Dr. Anjani Almladi is a double board certified adult psychiatrist and child adolescent psychiatrist, focusing on an integrative approach to patient care. She has extensive background in treating a wide variety of psychiatric disorders and speaks regularly far and wide on this topic as an engaging speaker who captivates audiences. She is the author of the Amazon best-selling children's picture book, When the World Got Sick, which helps children and caregivers talk about the impact of COVID-19 and how to navigate the stressful time we are in. She lives in Sacramento with her husband and many pets, where she currently splits her time between her group practice at Pacific Coast Psychiatric Associates and Community Mental Health at Uplift Family Service and Gateway Residential Treatment Center. Dr. A, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to start way back and work our way forward. I'm always interested with fellow um, mental health care professionals is the, the road and the journey, both as it relates to personal, professional, how you became a psychiatrist. Great question. So I I always knew that I wanted to be a doctor ever since I was a little kid. The only exception to that was when I really wanted a dog. So I think in my kindergarten yearbook, it said I wanted to be a veterinarian for a year. (laughs) (laughs) Just one year. Just one year. Just to see if I could squeeze a dog out of my parents. It didn't work. (laughs) Um, But I, I always knew that I wanted to be a doctor. I just didn't know what kind. So it wasn't until I started doing my clinical rotations in medical school and people were slowly but surely saying, oh, I want to do surgery or I want to do internal medicine. And none of the specialties had really appealed to me yet. And I was getting nervous because it was towards the end of my clinical rotations and I still hadn't found a specialty that I was passionate about. So the mental health subject was actually the last block of learning that we had in our core curriculum. And that's when everything clicked that this is the type of help that I want to be able to provide people. And that's how it happened. Awesome. There are um, not enough psychiatrists in the world, in the United States, um, more specifically for where we're practicing. And I also am curious about the spectrum. I mean, it's not, you know, for you to be double certified, that there's a lot of training and interest in children and adolescents, which is a, although a lot of people think is a, just a, you know, younger version of a grown adult, but it's, it, there's a ton of complexities. And so what, like, which first, which interest first and what led you to train and want to work with the entire human spectrum? 
So by default, when you become a psychiatrist, the adult training comes first. And one of the things that they always tell you in training is that if you want to be somebody who works with children and adolescents, the way that you become a good child and adolescent psychiatrist is by becoming a good adult psychiatrist first. So that training that I had for adult training also involved a small piece of working with children and adolescents. So having some exposure to that clinically when I was doing my rotations was enough for me to decide that I wanted to work with kids. The other caveat being that I come from a fairly large family. I have two older sisters, both of which had two boys each. So watching them grow up over the years kind of already primed me to want to work with children and Mm -hmm. adolescents Mm -hmm. so that it seemed like a natural fit. And I just, I love what I do. I, um, so within the field of psychology, it's very similar. It's just by default, you, you get, you train with adults and then you need to specialize or do a specialized, um, training, uh, cohort sequence, you know, really seek out depending on where, what school you go to that, um, expertise in children, adolescents, um, which I did as well. And so I'm wondering you, now that you've been in the field for some time, do you agree that, do you agree with the premise that to become a, a solid child and adolescent practitioner, you need to start with adults? I do. I do. Because there are a lot of things that happen in childhood that you don't have to account for as adults. For example, kids are constantly growing. Their brains are constantly changing. Their metabolism is also changing as they age. Their maturity level is also changing as they are exposed to new things and grow up and their brain develops. So I I wholeheartedly believe that if you can become a good adult practitioner and know kind of what stable adulthood, healthy adulthood looks like, being able to go backwards in time and kind of see things through a developmental lens. I think it gives you a much better idea of what to expect and how to intervene in childhood to become mm-hmm. a healthy adult. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense to me. And, um, you know, sometimes there's a deep sigh when people are like, oh, I'm working with adults. And for the most part, I'm just talking to one person. And with <laughs> with that children, adolescence, you have that changing person with so many environmental variables, developmental variables, and then you have parents, one, two, divorced, together, separated, you have teachers, you have, it's just, there's such a more dynamic process often, particularly with the younger kids, with all of the, 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 the team in their lives. Very, very. Okay. So we are, uh, we're still in the pandemic and, um, just to set context, regardless of when people are going to uh, listen to this, hopefully for some time to come. Um, There is some light uh, in terms of vaccines rolling out and um, some things lifting in some places, some quicker than others. And yet, I'm sure you are seeing what we're seeing is there is still so much... um, for lack of a word, like mental health struggle and devastation going on for children and adolescents um, around the country and I'm sure around the world. Right. Absolutely. It's something that I see in my practice every day and have been for the last year that this has been going on. What are you seeing? It kind of ebbs and flows, to be honest. So taking it back to a year ago when this first started, you know, the few weeks, first few weeks, first few months of kids doing remote learning and not having to go to school. It's kind of like an extended vacation. Kids are doing pretty well. But then after a few months of realizing that we're not actually going back to school for a while and we're not going to be able to see our friends for a while, and now we're stuck at home for what is much longer than an extended vacation, I was seeing a lot of anxiety about when this would be over, a lot of depression, isolation, lack of motivation, low energy, kind of low drive, and a real difficulty navigating 
what used to be um, a normal school environment now being turned completely and totally upside down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of ebbs, ebbs and flows. So every few months, you know, I see kids really, really struggling. And then a few months after that, it gets a little bit better. And then a few months after that, they really struggle again. But I think one of the most encouraging things that I see in my office is that kids are so resilient. And although, you know, they're kind of riding this this wave of things are getting better, things are getting worse, things are getting better, things are getting worse. They've really navigated it in such a beautiful and resilient way that I'm so proud of all of the kids that I see that are just kind of doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Likewise, uh, for me and, and um, at our center, and it's just, it seems there's, there's themes, general themes, and I agree with you with the ebb and flow, and then there's all the individual circumstances. So, you know, the kids that um, had some vulnerabilities before, other kids that things were going just fine and then really just hit a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the kids that, some kids... Um, preferring virtual school, but then a lot of kids not, particularly kids with neurodiverse issues um, and learning differences. And, um, you know, I honestly have had a tough time trying to take a pulse of the larger, what's going on in the larger world of children, adolescent resiliency. Uh, Because, you know, at your practice, at our practice, you know, we generally see the kids that are struggling and so it's it's tough to get a read on how this is how this is impacting kids on a larger scale, and also in some of the talks I've been doing, that some of the teachers have been saying, you know, we're really concerned bringing kids back and the transition for them back to school um, with all of the academic and social expectations that come with it. Sure, and I think all of that is valid. There are certainly pros and cons to having remote learning versus being in person. And I think what we're truly discovering, which is not something that is rocket science, we knew this before, but each individual child manages difficulties in many different ways. So I think one of the things that I'm learning in my practice is that there is no one size fits all uh, Mm -hmm. kind of program or treatment plan for for kids. It's all individual and based on the individual child and family. Yes. And so um, it's, and I guess I should also say for ask and for you to tell our listeners, you know, a lot of times people say um, here psychiatry and they just think medicine. You know that that's the those are the, that's the, those are the doctors that prescribe the, what we call psychotropic um medicines. And of course, the field, the psychiatric field did not start with medicine, you know, started with, um, it started with um, mental health, so therapy, psychodynamic therapy, which has evolved over time. And so many different psychiatrists, you know, are on the different spectrums of doing a lot of counseling and therapy and medicine and others uh, are predominantly prescribing, assessing, diagnosing and prescribing medicine. Um, By you know, learning about you and listening to you and knowing about your book, which we're going to be talking about soon, you obviously take a, you have a, a, an integrative holistic therapeutic approach to your work. I do. I do. I strongly believe in a well-rounded treatment approach. I, if medication worked as well as a lot of people who come into my office think it did, I would be out of a job. And I think just like therapy and exercise and sleep and healthy eating and medication is just another tool. It is not the answer to all of the woes that we have in our lives. It certainly can be helpful for some kids, not for all kids. It can be indicated um, for kids who are struggling quite a bit, but in, and I'm sure you're aware too of the research that shows that medication and therapy together mm-hmm. in general is best for long-term outcomes than either modality alone, which is something that I think is really important to keep in mind is that sometimes there's a misconception that if I take this pill that all of my problems and all of my symptoms are going to go away. 
I wish it was that easy, but it's it's not. Healing and treatment requires engagement and requires work, and requires work. Exactly, absolutely. And I was just trying in my brain to think of the uh, this great book that I read recently by a um, that you probably have heard of a UK uh, journalist. It's a best-selling book on um, looking at depression, uh, medication for treating depression predominantly, but also anxiety as someone, as an author who has um, t- been taking medicines for a lot of his life. And um, his argument was, you know, he was looking at the research and talking about the amount of people that it does work for. Like there is a percentage. And as you said, it's not necessarily the as high as people think. And his premise was that in the the research that he did was a lot of depression, for example, came from um, isolation and being separated from separated from people, separated from your goals, separated from seeing a future and 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 with with positing that how much we need connection to all of these different variables to help with depression. And in the context of COVID, COVID has really done a lot of separating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think the important thing is to remember that we are not biologically programmed to be in isolation. We are a cooperative society. We function in communities. We function in families. It's very challenging to navigate life individually which is one of the reasons why, you know, solid, for example, solitary confinement can be such a traumatic experience for people because we are not meant or programmed to be alone. No, no. And then that, then we, then technology. And I say, it's just so, it's fascinating to me how many of um, sessions before COVID uh, related to the concerns about technology use and then Technology becomes a necessity for learning and for connection, and this 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 um, conflictual relationship we have with it as adults, and then our children in this circumstance with their growing brains um, with technology. So, what have what have you seen there um, in terms of challenges? I think finding a balance between when to use technology and when to take a break from it has been really challenging for not only kids, but parents as well. Kids are doing a lot of online learning through Zoom. They have to go into their Google classrooms. They have to submit their assignments online. And then the only other social communication that they have, for the most part, unless they have a kind of a quarantine pod of kids that they see, is online with FaceTime or Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter. These are all things that when kids were going to school in person and parents were going to work in person, that there was a limit on devices. And now it's almost like devices have become a necessity to stay engaged with the world, which technology is great because it can connect people. For example, I have a lot of kids that really enjoy setting up virtual, um, I guess, virtual, what am I, what's the word that I'm thinking of? Virtual play dates. Yeah, play dates. Thank you. Virtual play dates where they will pull up an app and watch a movie together or pull up a game and play a game together. But then on the flip side, I have kids whose parents work or are essential workers or frontline workers who are alone by themselves all day and then are just on the iPad or the laptop or on their phone in isolation all by themselves all day mm-hmm. long. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really, really challenging to navigate the, the necessity of needing technology for communication and education, but also trying to balance that with interpersonal communication, social communication that we, we need. Totally. And to see this, as um, a phase in time. I mean, again, mm-hmm. there, it's mixed. Like, there, there are people that are doing well and thriving, and there's a lot of people, a lot of kids, that this is sort of a lost year of just right. survival. Um, 
and, and survival might sound too dramatic. I think in some cases it's dramatic. In other cases, it's not dramatic. And as you pointed out, depending on the family situation, like this is just getting through this. Right. Um, you know, parents needing to keep their jobs, parents needing to keep their their residences, um, parents required as essential workers across uh, different disciplines um, of people we need to do the work, and it and it takes its toll. And so, I do know for people listening, like there is are problematic levels of usage, um, and we have to see this in the context of the current climate, particularly with, you know, some places around the country, kids have been in school. Um, I know here in California, um, people uh, in Northern California are starting to go back to school. And the variable of not having a place to go for seven plus hours a day is huge um, in the day in the life of a child. Absolutely. And I think about the single parents that have to go into the office and don't have a choice. I think about parents that, yes, they're home, but they're in back-to-back meetings and aren't able to help their kids navigate getting on the multiple Zoom calls or when to take breaks or which websites are posting which assignments and where to submit set assignments. So it's even if you're physically home, it doesn't mean that you're available. Exactly, exactly. And for parents who do have time to listen to this um, and maybe multitasking, you know, the message is, is to, uh, to be kind to yourself and know that you are doing your best under the circumstances. I mean, it's, it's absolutely right. And it's like we all do want to continue to grow and do better. And at the same time, sometimes we just have to accept I'm just doing the best I can. And um, that's okay. Absolutely. And I think just to add another layer on that is, yes, I'm doing the best that I can. And that is good enough. That, of course, eventually we would all like to be able to do better. But this is not a situation that there's an instruction manual for. We were not prepared for what this was going to look like. We have no idea when it's going to be over. And for people who are used to having a schedule and having a plan, this has really kind of turned all of our lives upside down. Mm -hmm. And I think doing the best that you can with what you have is more than good enough. Kids are resilient. The situation will be temporary. Mm -hmm. All we have to do is try to adapt to the situation as best we possibly can. And knowing that you're not alone, I think, is one of the biggest things that helps people put things into perspective is that every child in every household has been affected by this in some way, either big or small. I think one of the things that happens is just by nature of how isolating the pandemic can be, it feels like I'm the only one. I'm not doing right by my child. I'm not doing the best that I can, which I think is a false narrative. And I think that sets us up for um, guilt and shame and burnout. And I think focusing on what is going well right now, knowing that we're doing the best that we can with what we have and that this situation is temporary mm-hmm. is how we, we rewrite that narrative. Because I think the, the negative shame blame cycle is so damaging. It is. And some of us are more loaded with that from our childhoods. And again, sure. the whole point is for us to be aware of ourselves, aware of where we came from. And as Dr. A is talking about, aware of our narratives, right? Like we really have to look at our narratives, trying to like take them outside of our heads and look at, I am this, I'm never good enough. Um, I'm not doing enough. And at, like, is this true? Like, is this a true narrative or actually it's an old narrative? And I am doing the best I can, and it is enough right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think one of the things to keep in mind, too, is that our kids are watching us, right? They are observing how we speak to ourselves. They're watching how we take care of ourselves. Or if we don't, we are creating a template for them to see how, as adults, we manage difficult, stressful, challenging situations. And 
knowing that we're doing our best and internalizing that narrative shows our kids that things may not be going perfectly, but we're doing our best and that is okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So when the world got sick, um, this is a best-selling book. And how did this book come to be? I love this book. Okay. So when in the beginning of all of this, I had parents, particularly of, of my littles, so my under 12, come in saying, I don't know how to have a conversation in an age-appropriate manner with my kiddo about what's happening. All I see are things on the news and big words, and I don't know how to open the door to this conversation. And so in the process, they were asking me for resources. And at the time, I was Googling everywhere, looking for, you know, resources on how to have this discussion with kids, and I wasn't finding anything that was helpful. So I decided to create it. I figured who better to kind of help parents explain this conversation or explain how to have this conversation with their kids than somebody who does this with kids every day. And then one thing led to another. Pretty much. It was kind of a happy accident, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best things. Is it, a, is it an accident or not? <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think has helped me is trying to tap into being creative. Because mm-hmm. when all of my patients who normally do quite well pre-pandemic are all now doing fairly terribly across the board especially in the middle kind of of the pandemic. So let's say six months ago, it's a very emotionally distraught time for them, for me, and finding ways to kind of adapt to figure out ways to to take care of myself and doing something creative, but Mm -hmm. also something meaningful was the way that I saved myself from burnout after hearing patient after patient, session after session saying, I'm not doing well. Things are terrible. I'm worried. I'm scared. We might lose our house. I got laid off from my job. My kids are not in school. I don't know if I'm showing up for them as a parent. It's, it's heavy. What we do is heavy. Mm-hmm. So being able to, to tap into something creative and create something that helps people is the way that I saved myself in in this pandemic, to be honest. Thank you for sharing that. Um, That's just, it's so important for people to hear. Uh, Also the myth that uh, people in the mental health and healing professions um, like have everything dialed in and we don't deal with any of the same things that you all do. That's a big Mm -hmm. myth. Um, and this has been hard. And what you're pointing to, Dr. A, is just, is the power we know from research and from practice, the power of creativity for health and well-being um, to tap mm-hmm. into that in, in regular times and particularly in challenging times. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a grand gesture. I mm-hmm. My favorite things are, actually, yeah, my favorite things that I do which are low budget, low cost, and don't take a lot of time are journaling. I love my adult coloring books that I get from the dollar store. Uh, Writing is a huge relief for me so that I can share my thoughts, but also share information and also kind of give back to the community and use my expertise to, to help people those are probably, well, I exercise as well and try mm-hmm. to eat healthy and try to lay off the caffeine and drink more water. Um, there are ways that don't have to be grand gestures that you can do to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. I think oftentimes when we think self-care, we think spa day or vacation or you know some extravagant, really expensive endeavor. And it doesn't have to be. Self-care can be very, very simple. 
for sure. I think like, yeah, it's, it's, it's what we think about it um, as, yeah, self-care has to be this very expensive, time-intensive thing. I, I think about why it took me so long in adulthood to get to um, regular meditation practice was uh, with young kids. I was always saying, oh, I don't have time. I need to wait <laughs> till I have an hour every day, assuming just like this big grand self-care thing, that's the only way to meditate. And that's also not true. We just need moments and to be aware and to take a walk uh, to sit and breathe. And it's these micro exercises and habits that um, are really foundational for health. Absolutely. And I think that's so true because the small gestures done consistently over a period of time add up over time. And I mean, if you think about the principle of compound interest, what mm-hmm. you, the small contributions that you make make a huge difference over time than just one giant contribution every now and then. So mm-hmm. I think that's something mm-hmm. that's important to keep in mind as well. You talk about uh, key ways um, for parents to support their children's mental health during this time. And I'm just going to lead us with the first one because, um, of course, it's so aligned with this show and parents uh, seeking their own health and wellness in order to raise healthy kids. And that first one is model healthy habits for your children, which you're talking about. Yes, definitely. I I just so want to emphasize that kids are very intelligent. They are very observant. And it's funny, a lot of times I have parents that will come into my office and say, well, we my husband and I or my partner and I don't talk about stressful things behind closed doors. So therefore there's no way that my child can know about what's happening. And one thing to keep in mind is that Walter said, when kids want to know things, they have very, uh, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? They have very creative ways of getting information And they pick up on body language, they pick up on posture, they pick up on tone of voice. So even if maybe you're able to keep the content from them, they are so observant. And it's amazing what even my five, six, seven-year-olds can tell me about what's happening in their household that their parents think they have no idea about. Right, right. Um, And for parents, you know this, your kids don't hear you when you ask them to come to the table, do the dishes, get their backpack or clean their room. They hear everything you don't want them to hear exquisitely. Absolutely. (laughs) It's just just the way it works. Absolutely. (laughs) So, okay. So model healthy habits for your children. That's uh, one of your big ones that you lead with. And then another practice you recommend is practicing looking for the positive. Right. So I think now I think it's important to distinguish between looking for the positive and toxic positivity. So I think one of the things to keep in mind is is that we are wanting to see challenges through a positive lens, not rose-colored glasses, right? So we know that daily life is full of unexpected challenges. And learning from those challenges can help your kids become more optimistic human beings. So like I said, when we're talking about modeling, whether or not as a parent you are seeing things through a positive lens or being very self-critical or very negative, your your, your kids are going to pick up on that. Um, And so we want to make sure that we are trying to focus more on the optimistic, more on the positive as opposed to focusing and dwelling more on the negative, which which isn't helpful for anybody. And th- and that's an important characteristic of what you know we call toxic positivity. It's like our kids need like they filter the world through us, and we need to keep our credibility with them. And as you said, Doctor A, they're smart. So if we're overly positive and that positivity doesn't even ref- start to reflect reality, we lose credibility with them. And so there is a difference between emphasizing everything is wonderful versus focusing on what is positive versus dwelling on the actual negative. Exactly. Exactly. And our kids, you know, they, they look to us for reassurance. They look to us for, um, you know, social referencing 
for example, how am I supposed to manage as a mini human the difficulties that are going on in my life? I'm feeling perhaps anxious or insecure or sad. Mom and dad, I'm going to go to you for support and help, but you're saying everything's fine, but I don't feel fine. So right. am I really fine or am yeah. I not fine? Right. Um, yeah, right. that's that happens actually quite a bit in, mm-hmm. in my office as well. The next tip, encourage kids to accomplish tasks on their own. Mm-hmm. I think this one's really important. I think, especially in a busy world, in a stressful world, it's much easier and much faster to step in for your kids to do things. For example, like laundry or doing the dishes or walking the dog or something like that. But I think the importance of allowing kids to explore and allowing them to try in a safe environment is helpful because it sets them up for success. What we want is our kids to eventually grow up to be independent and have a strong sense of self and be able to manage their day-to-day activities confidently. So when kids are able to achieve success on their own in a safe environment and are praised for doing exactly that, it builds up their sense of self-worth as well as their sense of self-esteem. And it's a really, really great way to, to build relationships and build confidence mm-hmm. and also help them be more successful in the future. For sure. And this totally, this, this, this dovetails with another, you know, another highlight that you talk about, which is allowing kids to try new things. And I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, allow is a very purposeful word you use, right? Allow kid, your kids to try new mm-hmm. things. Right. Right. I think that there's, and and I think this is a completely natural thing to do as a parent, that you want to protect your child from everything. That's a normal response to parenting and taking care of your child. However, at what cost, right? I mean, of course, you want to keep our kids safe, but we also don't want to over-insulate them from from being able to live their life. So allowing kids to explore and try new activities is really important because it helps them figure out what they're interested in and allows them to make social connections and helps them build a stronger sense of self and Mm self-confidence. So Mm -hmm. being overly protective is, can be just as damaging as being underprotective. That's so important. I mean, it could be crippling, right? It, it makes me it, it it makes me think of the book that many people know of, um, uh, "How to Raise an Adult" um, by Lithcott Haynes, uh, former dean of Stanford. And um, you know, she, she was in the book. She's talking about like people. There, there were freshmen who like didn't know how to take a. Amazon box in their room and open it when it arrived at their door. Like they just didn't know what to do and mm-hmm. how many, you know, and, and again, she wasn't judging. She was realizing, oh gosh, I'm, I'm engaging in some of these behaviors with my young kids and how we all just need to be aware in this current culture of um, parenting and caring and nurturing that we need to raise these people to be able to do things for themselves and to ta- experience and tolerate pain. Right. Right. And I think that's one of the biggest things is that life at some point will become uncomfortable for all of us. And being able to tolerate that discomfort in healthy ways is is how we raise self-sufficient, independent, high-functioning children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and you also are pretty adamant about nipping negative self-talk or negative talk with kids. And I'm wondering, how do you recommend parents do that? I think one of the most important ways that parents can limit their children absorbing kind of negative self-talk behaviors is, is watching that in ourselves. I think if we are very introspective and honest about the way that we speak to ourselves, because a lot of times what parents will say is, I don't know where my kiddo gets this from. But then yeah, in the same right. conversation is, you know, their phone goes off in session and go, Oh, I'm such an idiot. I didn't, I forgot to turn off the ringer in session. 
So I think taking those opportunities to remind parents that what we say is very powerful and that it is observed. So step one would be get very introspective about what you are and are not saying to and about yourself. And the other thing is when you see it in your child, address it then and there in the moment. That a lot of times kids mm-hmm. will say things, I'm stupid or it's too hard or I can't, I can't do it. But I think trying to change those statements to something a little bit more positive, a little bit more encouraging, maybe saying things like, I am understanding that you feel that this is difficult right now, but with some practice, this will get easier. I know you can do it. Mm-hmm. I've seen mm-hmm. you do this before, and this is going to be just like every other time before that. Just keep at it, keep practicing, and and things will get easier. Yeah. So giving kids different words, and of course, thinking and watching and listening to ourselves, our own words that we are we don't know we're giving our kids, but we're giving them when they're hearing us. Right. Okay, and the last one, which we sort of already uh, hit uh, throughout the uh, this conversation, is is keeping it real, be honest, right? This authenticity, and of course, how we gotta we have to modulate that given our children's developmental age. Right, and I think that's the the most important thing is that we we want to make sure that we're talking to our kids in at an age appropriate level. So, for example, for our younger kids. We want to be direct, use short sentences, use smaller words, knowing that our younger kiddos are not developmentally able to abstract yet. So, for example, if a family member passes away hypothetically of COVID, saying they've moved on is very confusing as opposed to, you know, this family member died. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And because I have some parents who who have come into my office saying, well, they, they think that aunt, whoever, you know, moved to a different state, they, they don't understand that they're no longer here. Mm -hmm. So kind of having the age appropriate discussion and being honest, but also empathetic at the same time is important. Now for increasing the age to say teenagers, for example, they're much more developmentally able to have conversations that involve abstraction. Mm-hmm. But the, the biggest thing is we, we don't ever want to lie to our kids ever. Right. Right. Because if we get caught, that undermines all credibility that we have. And I think one of the things to, to be very mindful of is that our kids do not expect us to have the answers to everything. It is okay to say, I don't know. I don't have the answer to when this is going to be over or how best to navigate this. But being open and honest, and I think authentic is a perfect word that you use to describe how we want to interact with our mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Um, so as people are, are listening, you know, as we are in, still in the pandemic, um, over, well, just about a year in. And people are going to be listening to this when we still are in the pandemic. And people are going to be listening to this when we are no longer in the pandemic. So I want to highlight these six these six tips that um, Dr. A is recommending during our pandemic are also completely relevant and universal for promoting mental health uh, in your children anytime. And those are modeling healthy habits for your children, practice looking for the positive, encouraging your kids to accomplish things on their own, allowing your kids to try new things, nip negative self-talk in the bud, and finally, keeping it real and being honest with your kids at the level that they're ready for. Absolutely. Those- those are wise, wise tips, Dr. A. Now, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. You are ready. Yes? I am ready. That was my Jedi mind trick. You are ready for the parent <laughs> footprint. Okay. Okay. So, tell us about... You are. Yes, all right. Tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as a person or an individual and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself or 
those you love? So I've I've talked about this, I think, in other podcast interviews as well, but I think it it's important to kind of talk about it again. So when when I was 24 years old, I was in my first year of medical school, and I actually, long story short, was diagnosed with metastatic thyroid cancer in my very first semester of my first year of medical school. So in your early 20s or mid-20s, you kind of think that you're invincible at that point. You're healthy. You're um, adventurous. You are interested in all of the things that life has to offer. So to kind of get blindsided by that was was really challenging. And it was a difficult surgery. I had a couple rounds of radiation. It was a very long recovery. And I think in that process, I realized that there are some things that are just not worth spending emotional, physical, and mental energy on. Mm. I quickly learned that emotional energy is like a bank account that you can only make a certain number of withdrawals and then you start to run that bank account dry. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to kind of budget my emotional dollars a lot better knowing that there wasn't an unlimited supply in the bank. So I think that helped me pick my battles. It helped me decide who I wanted to be. It helped me become a better physician. It helped me become a better person. Um, It helped me be more involved in my family. And it was really difficult. It was a really difficult and really challenging time. But I think is living proof that even though things can be so, so, so challenging at times, that if you just put one foot in front of the other and keep going, that you'll you'll end up where you're meant to be, despite having an often very challenging and emotionally draining setbacks. Thank you for sharing that. I can I mean, we can't even imagine what that would have been like for you on top of I mean, first you have med school, which is enough as it is, and then this um life, potentially life-threatening situation, and then the treatment. So profound, profound. And, and how has it been maintaining this awareness and keeping it in practice years later? So I think it's gotten easier over time. I think, you know, when I was 24 and I got my diagnosis, I had my surgery that same year, I think initially I was really angry because why me? Why now? I'm doing all of these things and I have all these hopes and goals and aspirations that may or may not come true. But then I think as, because it's been over almost 10 years now, actually, this this year will be my 10-year cancer-free, my cancer-versary, I guess. Mm, that again, <laughs> so, yeah. So I think over time and just lots of introspection and lots of reflection and going to therapy and working these things out, I've, I've just kind of learned to accept it as something bad that happened, but not something that defines who I am or, or who I want to be. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that story and that moment. It's, you know, it's interesting when I when I think about it now, it's, it seems like such a distant memory. But then I realize now that 10 years later, it it has had a very large impact mm-hmm. on me for, for obvious reasons. But I think it's important um, for, for us as humans to realize that just because something negative happens to us doesn't mean that we can't get over it. We are capable of resilience and growth and change and meeting our goals, even if it it means it comes in a different form at a different time, maybe not when we are expecting. So I, I hope that everybody who is listening, who has had something challenging or negative happen to them, knows that there are 
there are positive ways of managing and there are, um, there's hope. There's hope at the end of the day. Yes, there is. And uh, happy 10-year anniversary. That's big. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. A. Um, tell us where people can find your book. You, I know you're working on another book and to find your work. Sure. So my book is on Amazon and it was really important for me for the book to be accessible. So there's a Kindle version that's only $1.99 that you can download from Amazon.com. There is also a print copy if you like to turn pages, which I do. My website is AnjaniAmladiMD.com. And you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at AnjaniAmladiMD. There it is. Thanks so much, Dr. A, for um, your caring, for your wisdom, and sharing your story of strength and resilience with us. And thank you so much for having me. That concludes another show, everyone. If you are liking what you hear and you think this can help others, please send this episode along and subscribe to this podcast. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to do your best, your very best to be the person you want your child to become. And as always, I will leave you with this guiding question. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.